Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. It's a very sticky stage this morning, Jason. I blame the youth. You can hear it sticking. So you guys like our 80s theme music for this series? Are you ready? All right. We are starting a brand new series this morning called Disciple Makers, and it flows so well out of our previous series. Were you all here for it to say or not to say? It's good, right? Well, this one, sort of an answer to a question. If you have decided to stay, stay in your relationship with God, stay true to his word, stay in this church, whatever it is. If you've decided to stay, now what? Right? You made the decision, you got to do something with it. Well, this series is an answer to that. Become a disciple maker. We're going to spend the next few weeks sort of unpacking that term. That term is sort of redundant in itself. If you know anything about being a disciple, The word disciple is actually used as a noun, a disciple, and a verb, to disciple, right? Disciples naturally disciple others. So disciple makers is sort of redundant, but that's kind of the point. We want to teach disciples of Jesus how to then mature to the point that they can teach others, disciple others, and bring them along on that journey. That's kind of what it's all about. You know, I think most of us as Christians, as People who have made a decision to follow Jesus already, I think you get why it's important to evangelize, to share your faith, to spread the good news, right? You've been freed by the power of Jesus Christ, and to some degree, you want other people to experience that. So I don't think we necessarily don't do it because we don't want to, but I think most of us don't know how to be a disciple maker. You know, last week, Jesus talked about Jesus, Jason, talked about dust, right? He said, shake off the dust of your past, the dust of distractions, the things that hold you back. Well, this week, I want to talk a little bit about a kind of dust that you should be constantly getting on you and not shaking off. In Jesus' day and in his culture, things were dusty, right? They lived in an arid culture. It was desert. They walked around in sandals. Things were dusty, and it was sort of intrinsically known that everybody was a little dusty. It sort of worked its way into their cultural sayings, right? And and so one of the things that they would say when they were recruited by a rabbi to be a disciple was in the dust of the rabbi. It became a saying. To be in the dust of the rabbi meant that you followed your teacher so closely that his dust from his feet got on to you. Okay, it was pretty common in that day for rabbis to recruit disciples. We know John the Baptist had recruited disciples, various other rabbis in that day, just as Jesus did. And so to follow in the dust of the rabbi was sort of a a romantic way to say that you were a disciple, sort of a quixotic and romanticized version of being a disciple. And we actually see Jesus address that. In Luke 14, He turns around and he looks at this huge crowd of people that are following him. And he says, guys, this isn't all just 
rainbows and sunshine. I want to talk to you that are romanticizing this a little bit, and I want you to know what's coming, because we have a tendency to do that as Christians, right? God is the provider, the deliverer, the comforter. He answers all of my prayers. He is always there for me, and all of those things are true, but it doesn't mean he's going to stop every single trial from coming your way. doesn't mean he's going to squelch every storm. Some of them you're going to have to walk through a little bit. And Jesus addresses that here in Luke 14, which is where we're going today. Verse 25 is where we're going to start. And this passage is probably labeled in your Bibles, at least in some versions. It's called the cost of being a disciple. The cost of being a disciple. We talk a lot about the benefits of following Jesus, and there are many. Please hear me on that. But here... Jesus addresses the cost. So we're going to read this verse by verse and sort of break it down piece by piece because Jesus says a whole lot here in just 10 verses. So verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying here? It seems sort of incongruent with everything else that Jesus has taught, right? Usually he's saying to love people and to sacrifice yourself for them. And here he's saying to hate them. But he's not actually, is he? In fact, this is one of the the passages that People like to throw out, well, the Bible contradicts itself. You know that. Because here Jesus is saying to hate people, and before he's saying to love them. But it's not actually what Jesus is saying. They're skipping two words when they make that argument. He's saying, by comparison, your love for God, your uh, followership of him should be so strong that it looks like you hate everyone else in comparison to your love for God. He's saying you need to identify exactly who your leader is. Because by identifying who he is, you're identifying who your leader is not as well. Know the voice of your rabbi, Jesus is saying. Know it so well that you can pick it out from a crowd, that it is louder than all the other voices in your life. Because the other voices can be really loud sometimes. And this is the foundation that everything else is built on. Our obedience to God is the foundation that everything else is built on. Jesus is saying, begin low. Lay the foundation. Lay a good foundation. Jesus' word, his voice above all else. And then aim as high as heaven. But make sure that foundation is firm. I do this a lot in my life when I'm facing a big decision, something tough. I go to all the people around me, right? I I go to my mentors, my friends, my mom. I go to everybody around me and get their opinion first. And then I say, oh, yeah, God, by the way, um, what do you think about this decision? Oops. I should be going to him first and saying, what do you think? And then, yeah, Proverbs says there is safety in a multitude of counselors. It's not bad to get advice as long as God's voice is the loudest voice. 
Don't go to everyone else before going to him. Jesus is just saying, <coughs> his voice should be louder. Know the voice of your rabbi. You know, there is pain in this. There is pain. I'm struggling with my voice today. I'm sorry, guys. I've been talking too much this weekend. <laughs> there is pain when your friends and your family all disagree with decisions that you've made about following him. There can be pain when everybody else is disagreeing with the way that you're following Jesus. Jesus is warning us here. Emotional pain sort of comes with the territory. The world is not going to understand all of the time. But there's also freedom in knowing who your boss is because it's not all up to you anymore. You don't have to take that on yourself anymore. You can say, look, God told me this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I have to follow him. You know, as a pastor, I'm not building my church with my disciples and people following me. I'm building his church with his disciples and people following him, and I'm going to be obedient to how he tells me to lead it, how he tells me to shepherd his people. It's not up to me. There's freedom in that. I get to pass the buck on a little bit sometimes. It doesn't stop with me. Jesus is saying, look, sometimes there will be pain. Sometimes your friends and your family, they're not going to agree Know that going in. <clears throat> if you do not carry your own cross, he goes on to say. You know, I struggle with this, this piece, too, a little bit, because the disciples at this time hadn't seen Jesus carry his own cross. We get the benefit of knowing Jesus did carry a cross, right? He carried the device of his own torture to his death. He was made to. He was beat and spit on. They didn't see that coming yet. They couldn't have understood that that's what was actually happening. They got a little bit of a foreshadowing here, but <clears throat> it was pretty common in that time to see crucifixions. I mean, the Romans did it a lot. It was terrible and disgusting and horrible, but they saved it for the worst of the worst. And they crucified people and they made them carry their own device of torture. Jesus is saying, sometimes we have to carry the things that will torture us. And if you've ever been through something with God, something tough that you know God led you to, you probably understand this to some degree. Sometimes it seems like God leads us to a dead end. What on earth are you doing here, God? You know, in Exodus, Moses led millions of people out of the land of Egypt to the Red Sea with the army closing in behind them, two natural formations on either side, and a sea in front of them. There was nowhere to go. Can you imagine the anxiety in Moses' heart? <laughs> like, God, I'm pretty sure this is what you said to do. There's nowhere to go. Dead end. Is this really, really you led me here, God? Now what? Because they're all complaining, 
Everybody's looking to me for answers. I don't know what to do. But did he need to worry? Did he need to have anxiety? After all, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of that sea, led him there. He was always going to make a way where there is no way. Sometimes we have to carry the very things that torture us. Jesus isn't saying that to discourage us. He's not trying to talk us out of discipleship. He's actually trying to develop perseverance in us to help us last through the dead-end seasons, the tough seasons, to know that there is breakthrough on the other side. We could not have the resurrection power without the crucifixion. We can't have breakthrough and blessing on the other side if we don't go through the pain a little bit. Most of us give up in the pain. We don't make it. Jesus is saying, look, count the cost before you start. You have to know your leader's voice so well because you have to trust it. Thank you. Too much talking when you have a cold is not a good thing. The testing seasons come. The cross-carrying seasons come. We have to know his voice enough to hang on to get to the other side where the breakthrough is. Being in the dust of the rabbi sometimes means not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Those disciples essentially didn't have a home, a place to lay their head for three years while they followed Jesus. They stayed in various houses. They stayed in gardens overnight while Jesus prayed. We beat them up sometimes for falling asleep in that garden in Gethsemane when Jesus was praying before he got arrested. But maybe they hadn't slept in a few days. Maybe they didn't have a good place to lay their head in a while. They were tired, beat up, ready for some rest. They often didn't know where their next meal was going to come from either. Being a, a disciple is tough sometimes. You have to know the voice of your rabbi because it needs to be louder than all the other voices because in those testing seasons those voices seem really loud <clears throat> okay Jesus goes on verse 28 but don't begin until you count the cost for who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. <clears throat> Again, crazy, tough words from Jesus. Do y'all remember our wonder series back at Christmas? Where we went over why Jesus sometimes seems to hide the truth a little bit? 
It's to make us dig for it a little bit, right? To make us work for it. Let it dawn on us over time as we meditate and study and try to figure out what is going on. He actually ends this passage, which we'll read in a couple minutes, by saying, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Because it's not just easy to stumble upon truth. Sometimes you got to work for it a little bit. And here, it seems like Jesus is saying, look, you're going to fail at this. Don't do it. Turn around and go home now. You can't all be my disciple. When in reality, he's issuing a warning not to turn people away, but to help them better understand what's coming. See, the world shows you the best and tries to hide the worst. Right? Take all this pleasure. Don't mind the guilt you're going to feel later. Take all this, this pleasure. Don't mind the, the withdrawal you're going to feel later. Don't worry about that. Do what you want to do. do the, make the selfish choice. It's good for you. They hide the worst, trying to show you the best. That's not what Jesus is doing here. There are blessings. There are good things abundantly about following God. Here, Jesus is saying, there's also bad. And I want you to know, going in, so that you can last through the testing seasons. He's not hiding anything. His best, in fact, will abundantly cover the worst. Abundantly. Aaron and I are going through some tough stuff right now with his health. And many of you know that story. He got out of the hospital 15 long days in the hospital where I was sleeping on the floor. And it was tough back in July. And I remember, I think we were driving home from the hospital. And I remember looking at him like, is this the worst time of our life? Like, do you think we'll look back on this moment and, and think that it was the worst? Because I know things are bad and, and they don't look good right now, but it doesn't feel like it's the worst. Like I, I, I remember grappling with that, and I don't think it dawned on me until later, but that's called peace in the middle of the storm. That's Jesus showing me that it's going to be okay. We might get beat up. That's fine. God will heal us. We might get killed. That's fine. We'll be with God, right? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's nothing the world can do to us that should cause me to lose that peace. I have him. The God of heaven and earth is on my side. It doesn't matter if they beat us up. I'll be healed. And if they kill us, I'll be with God. So... Peace. In the middle of the storm, Jesus isn't calling us to fail. He's trying to help us last through the testing seasons. To show us that there is joy and breakthrough and blessing on the other side. Now, we have a saying as Christians, we often tell each other, especially in grieving seasons, everything happens for a reason. <clears throat> And I think it comes from a good place. And, and usually it sounds fine to say, but to the hearer, it sometimes gets mixed up because we think, well, they mean God makes everything happen for a good reason. That's not necessarily true. However, Romans 8.28 does promise us, like we sang today, that he will work everything out for the good of those who love him. So while it may not have happened 
for a good reason, God will turn it in to a good thing in your life because of who he is, not because of why it happened. He wants good things for you. But he's not afraid to warn you that there are bad things coming too. Because his good far outweighs the bad. And Jesus illustrates this by showing us that we have to consider the expenses of our choice by literally using dollars and cents. He's talking about building a tower with real money. I always wonder why Christians get so frustrated with the church asking for money. Jesus is pretty clear that discipleship does cost you something. Actual resources, finances, and the disciples had to give up their careers to follow him. It's going to cost you something. The second example he showed was war. Making decisions about thousands of lives. Discipleship isn't always safe either. So Jesus first warns us about the emotional turmoil you might go through with your family and friends. And then he moves on to financial turmoil you might have to go through. And third, safety, physical safety. Again, Jesus, what are you doing here? Are you trying to to talk me out of it? The thing is, Jesus is our leader. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have an empire he was building castle he was going to go live in at the end of this journey. He was provided for his daily meals, but he wasn't building a bank account. And he was ultimately led to a cross. That's who we're following. His calling was worth being crucified for. Why do we think ours should be so easy? Our calling might test us financially, might test us emotionally, and it might test us physically. That's what Jesus is saying here. Buckle up, buttercup. It's coming. Get ready. I'm not calling you to something easy. I'm calling you to something worth it. It's good. It's a good calling, and I will provide for you, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. Jesus isn't saying that failure will come. He didn't call you to fail. He's giving you a hint as to how to succeed. Most of us never mature into disciple makers because we can't get through these testing seasons. We quit. We give up. It's not supposed to be this hard. And I think most of the time I get up in the morning and say, God, Give me a good day today, a great day today. And what I mean is give me an easy day today. Let everyone be nice to me. Let my meals be provided for. Let the kids be good. No stress, no anxiety, no worries. Let me just sail through the day. If I get up in the morning and say, God, use me today. <laughs> It's not necessarily going to be an easy day, right? It's going to be a good day. God will have used me to do something in the world for him. And it'll probably be hard. (laughs) But I'm ready for that. I was going through a season lately where I was sort of pity partying, stomping my feet at God. I, I literally, I think I said out loud, God, I'm not strong enough for this. And immediately... 
a voice in my own head. I don't think it was God. I think it was me. <laughs> I was responding to myself saying, yes, you are. Stop it. Of course you are. Stop saying you're not. You've been raised for this. I literally, I grew up in a pastor's kid. I was a pastor's kid growing up. I know how hard ministry can be. Why am I stomping my feet at God? I knew what I was getting myself into. I came into ministry eyes wide open. Of course I'm strong enough for this. I have the Holy Spirit living within me. Jesus died so that I could. Of course I am. Stop stomping your feet all the time, Candace Pringle, and just buckle up. Our job is to release our attachments to things and to people. Not that we shouldn't love them, but our identity attachments. Most of us, we build our empires, our things. We want the two-car garage and the white picket fence. Then we'll arrive, right? We want the perfect friends and the perfect family and everything to look right in our lives. Then we'll finally be fulfilled, right? But Jesus is saying you have to release those attachments to things and to people, even to feeding yourself. He says you have to die to yourself too, your flesh, the things that you want. The only true attachment, identity-wise, should be to God, his voice. Jesus modeled this for us so many ways. I mean, in his final moments on the cross, right, he didn't complain when everybody was beating him up, spitting on him, mocking him, putting a crown of thorns on his head like he was a king, putting a sign above his head saying, King of the Jews, literally mocking him. Didn't care that most of his disciples deserted him, nowhere to be found, denying they even knew him. He didn't complain about any of that. In fact, we see him forgiving them in his last moments. Even the guy beside him hanging on the cross, he forgave. We do see him, however, approach. I don't know if I can call it a complaint, but it's the only thing close to a complaint that we see Jesus doing. In those final moments, he had to take this in on himself. God turned his back from him for a moment because he had to die. That's when we see Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only thing Jesus cared about was God's presence left him because it's the only thing that matters, truly matters for eternity Don't get me wrong, good people in your life are important. The things in your life might be important, but as they serve your calling, his voice has to come first. Jesus modeled this for us in his fasting, testing, tempting season before his ministry. Right before he started his ministry on earth, he went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't eat or drink anything to be tempted. And Satan came to him, and he tempted him with power, and he tempted him with selfishness, and he tempted him with food, which I don't know if you've ever done a 40-day fast. I haven't, actually. My husband has. It's crazy. So long. You're very hungry. Power, selfishness, and food. And, by the way, Satan used scripture to do it, using scripture against Jesus. 
But Jesus said, no. God's voice, his calling on my life is more important than any of those things. And he hasn't called me to fail. So I'm going to keep going. And he ministered to people who mistreated him, beat him up for it. Do you know, even in Jesus' hometown, they tried to throw him off a cliff. For just, he didn't even do a miracle at that point. He was sitting in his own tabernacle, the one he probably grew up at and read scripture in many times. And then he started teaching that scripture. The people were all about it. They begged him to do a miracle. And when he didn't, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Even in his hometown. I mean, he knew better than anyone that sometimes your family isn't going to agree with following God. And he still went through to the end. He didn't call us to fail, but failure is possible. It is possible. We see leader after leader after leader, these big megachurch pastors, I mean, as long as I can remember, have failed because we're human and that's what we do. Jesus never did. But we're not him. And so... To prepare us for the testing seasons, to try to help us succeed, Jesus said, count the cost. He goes on in verse 34 to say, salt is good for seasoning. But if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. It's possible to lose your saltiness. As believers, we're called to be salt and light to the world. That is to be flavorful, to be vibrant, to be passionate, right? To be joy, to make the room brighter when we enter it, to leave things better than we found it. That's our calling. And yet most of us are a drag to be around. We judge people, beat them up. With the Bible, we're condemning, gossiping, and lording our authority over people. It's not okay. We're making things worse. It's flavorless salt. It means nothing. Nobody wants it. We're called to bring joy. As believers, we should be evangelizing the world. Sure, we should be going out and telling people about Jesus, but most of us go about it completely wrong. We want to tell people everything they're doing wrong, hoping that will bring them into the light instead of showing them the light and allowing God to take care of the wrong. I was reading a book lately that said, we have over-evangelized the world too lightly. Which means we want to put Jesus on billboards and we want to tell people about Jesus, come into a city and blanket it with Jesus and then run away. That's why we support missionaries, actually, that are all about church planting. We come into a city, say, with Mission SOS in Africa. We, we come into a city, we preach Jesus, and then we try to get them all to go to the new churches that are being planted. That's why church planting is so important, because it's little disciple-making factories. It's not coming into a city and saying, Jesus loves you, peace out. That's not, that's not helpful. People might get saved, but then they don't know what to do with that. And they end up going back to their old life. Now they're desensitized to Jesus. 
Wow, that didn't work. I tried that for a week. Moving on. I tried the Bible. I tried church. It didn't work. Discipleship, disciple-making is what actually moves them through these testing seasons. When people don't have anyone to, to ask questions of, that for that first testing season that comes, the first storm that comes and knocks them off completely because there's no one anchoring them down to anything. It's why Jesus created the church. Do you know he created the church? First time the word church was mentioned, it's ecclesia in the Greek. Jesus mentioned it. He set it up. He created it and he commissioned it, saying go into all the world and create disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He gave us our mission and calling. It wasn't just to tell people the good news, although we should be, but also to make disciples. It's not always going to be easy, but each and every one of us have to mature to the point where we can do this. See, next week we're going to talk about sort of the levels of discipleship that we all tend to move through. We start out as believers, and we, we go on to, we're following a little bit, we're being obedient a little bit, but we have to get to the point where we're also making disciples, and that means having walked through some stuff. There's even time amounts in the Bible for church leaders. First Timothy and, and some other places in the Bible, they have uh, requirements for church leaders, and some of it is that you're not a brand new believer, <laughs> Because you got to walk through some testing seasons a little bit to mature to the point where you can walk somebody else through those seasons. I had a friend that uh, had just gotten saved, and something amazing happened to her, and she was all about it. And I remember celebrating with her in that season, saying, awesome, thank God for that. He does provide. He is so good. But just let me warn you a little bit. It's not always going to be this way. Yes, thank God. Yes, praise him for what he did because he is the provider. He does do that. But I just want you to know there are testing seasons coming. And since then, it's been a year, year and a half, and she's texted me a couple times saying, thank you so much for telling me that because I don't know if I would have gotten through the season that I'm in right now if you hadn't warned me that it's not always going to be easy. That's discipleship. It's having someone to go to in the storm. Every single one of us have to develop to the point where we're disciple makers. We have to stop stepping back and saying, that's the pastor's job. Isn't that what we pay them for? That's the evangelist's job. The, the people that come in on Epic Weekends, they have a gift for it. I don't. It's not me. I'm too shy. Or like Moses, I, I stutter. I'm not a good speaker. I, I can't do that. Does God ever let us get away with those excuses? No. He's going to equip you for what you're called to do. But oftentimes after you've stepped out in faith a little bit, he allows you to be tested a little bit. See if you're just a, a fan or a true follower, if you're ready to share the love that you've experienced with the world. Other people can do it, sure. But not like you can. Each and every one of you have been gifted with talents and abilities, spiritual gifts. 
that you should be using to see people come to know Jesus, gifts that I don't have. You have a sphere of influence that I don't have. You are going to be able to reach people I can't reach. We have to work together as a community. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are few. He needs more people that get up in the morning and instead of saying, God, let me have a great easy day, they're saying, God, use me. Now, I think I said last week, but use me is actually one of the bravest prayers you can pray. Because the second God starts using you is when you get tested. Either people don't want to hear it, or you invest your heart and soul into people for a long time, and they still walk away. And it's heartbreaking. And it's really hard in those moments to get back up again tomorrow and to not say, God, what, what, what am I even doing this for? They're not going to listen. <laughs> Why am I giving my time and energy? Why am I pouring my soul into somebody who doesn't want it? And God says, get up. Love them anyway. People will disappoint you. Know that going in. People will disagree with you. It'll take your finances and it will test you physically. But it's worth it. Go into all the world and make disciples of all people. Because there is room in this house. Look at all these empty chairs in this room. There's room in this house. It's one of why one of our core values is an empty seat is a serious matter. Because every single empty seat in this room, over all three services, represents someone who isn't here, who could be hearing the message of the gospel this morning, who could be set free by the power of Jesus Christ. But we haven't invited them. And it comes down to every single one of us using our talents our God-given gifts and abilities and our sphere of influence, our neighbors. Jesus called them our neighbors because it's just the people around you. He's not calling you necessarily to give up all your worldly possessions and go to Africa. He's just calling you right now to minister the, to your neighbors, coworkers, friends. Don't go tell me I don't have neighbors for two miles in any direction. This, you don't get a free pass. It's just the people close to you in life, people you work with your family, your friends, your sphere of influence. Start with them. Love them. Share a a verse with them. Be there for them in in grieving times, in tough times. Swoop in and and disciple somebody. Jesus called us to be fishers of men, to seek and to save the lost. Sometimes we have to work at this a little bit. Things aren't just going to fall in your lap. I hear people pray sometimes, God, just let somebody come to me and ask me about Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's not a bad prayer. It's not always going to happen that way. Sometimes you have to go after it a little bit. You have to put yourself out there. Step out in faith a little bit. There is room in this house. Do you just come to church to feel good and learn a new Bible fact? Or did you come to partner with us in ministry to seek and to save the lost and take this mission seriously? Now, again, I don't think 
it's that we misunderstand our calling or we don't want to fulfill it as Christians. I think it's that we don't know how. And so I have an answer for that too. Over the next five weeks, this is one of our longer series this year, we're going to be unpacking this disciple maker's term, but we're also going to be learning practical ways to do this together. So there's a, a new challenge I'm issuing. Were any of you here for my challenges last year? The unexpected challenge or the worship challenge? or We've done these various take-home challenges. Now we have a disciple maker's challenge. So over the next five weeks, I'm going to issue four challenges a week. And there's a little card in your bulletins that says disciple makers. You can find all four of them on there. I know the font is really small. I'm sorry. I had to fit it all on the little card. Get that out. There are four challenges on there. They're also on your app under challenges and at fe.church slash disciple makers. You can find it everywhere. Don't worry. I'll be posting a million times a week. But practical ways to be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. Just for example, challenge number one, pick a new book to read or podcast to subscribe to. Why? Because disciple makers are constantly learning from their teacher in the dust of the rabbi. You have to be learning something, a little bit more than on the weekends when you're at church, learning something. And there's a bunch of options, all clickable on your app, so you can just download an app, subscribe to a podcast, order a new book, whatever it is. It's just for example, challenge number two, share what you're learning with someone. It doesn't say who. Pick somebody challenging, maybe. A coworker, a spouse, a kid, a friend. Spouses can be tough. Sometimes, when you're not learning for so long together, and then suddenly one of you is learning, it's vulnerable to share that stuff sometimes. So share what you're learning with someone. Why? Because disciple makers bring others along with them. Practical, okay? On the weekends, we're going to be learning the overall concepts, the whys, the hows, the whats. But during the week, I want you to practice this. Do you know Jesus sent out the disciples Sometimes, over the three years of his ministry, he would send them out to, in groups of twos to various towns and cities, and they'd go and they'd pray over people, and they'd lay their hands on, and it wouldn't work like they saw it working for Jesus. And they'd come back to him, and they'd say, Jesus, why? Right? They had on-the-job training. They learned by watching him, by asking him, and then going out and practicing it. This is my challenge to you this week. Practice this a little bit. Sit with somebody in grief. Love them. Pray for them. Pray over somebody in the grocery store when it's super uncomfortable. Right? Share what you're learning with people. Invite someone over for dinner. Why? Because disciple makers share their lives with others. The early church in Acts 2 worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. This is what disciple makers do, and we're going to practice this over the next five weeks. Okay, are you in with me? Who's going to do it? Yeah? Okay. Sign up on the app. I'd love to pray over you as you go through this and, and know who all is doing it. Um, we're going to do this together as a church. We have to develop this year into every single one of us seeing ourselves as priests in God's kingdom, as workers in his harvest field. You have to start carrying yourself like a pastor, seeing yourself that way so you can minister to the people in your life. And by the way, it holds you to another standard. 
I didn't say this in the other services, but I've seen so many people step into a new role at church. Maybe it's head usher or it's an eldership role or it's something bigger than they've done in the past. And suddenly their thinking begins to change. Oh, I have to straighten out. I can't say stuff like that anymore. I'm, I'm a head usher, right? I've got a new area of responsibility. I've got to step up my game. It's just another level of God exemplifying, I will equip you for what you're called to do. I will help you develop into that what you're called to do. You don't have to be perfect to step into it. Okay, so Father, take you stage again. Father, we thank you and we praise you for what you're doing here in our church. Father, develop our hearts and our minds. Teach us how to not just be fans of your word, but followers of it, disciple makers in your kingdom. Teach us to love you better than we ever have before and to love people better than we ever have before. God, send us out as workers. Let our minds and our thoughts constantly be on you and how we can show you to the people around us. Father, let us not just show up at church every week and learn a little bit, a new Bible fact, but to actually let it get down into our souls so that it blooms and fruit in our lives. Empower us with the Holy Spirit that as we go out from here into the, our mission field, that you would just bless us with the wisdom, the power, and the authority to preach your word can only come through the Holy Spirit. Father, multiply every single minute spent praying and fasting and seeking your face and fruit in our lives so that we can minister to the people around us effectively. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. Hey everybody, welcome to Home Groups, where we apply the message we heard this weekend at FV Church. This weekend, we started a new series called Disciple Makers, and this was kind of a transition message where we acknowledged the importance of staying in our own faith, counting the cost, and challenging ourselves to grow, and we actually kicked off a Bible challenge this week. Yeah, Disciple Makers, the Bible challenge is uh, four different bite-sized challenges every single week to really drill down the practical steps into disciple making. We felt like it was such a big concept that the average person that attends church might not really understand what we're talking about. They might think that disciple making is all about, you know, delivering sermons and rebuking people or something, but it's not that. It can be very simply just sharing your faith, sharing what you're learning and growing in with someone else. And that's what the challenge is all about. Seeing ways that you can do this in your everyday life. And that's what home groups are all about. Yeah. It's challenging one another. And 
In this semester, I hope you've been growing and gaining a lot from it, but there's only four weeks left. So we need to keep running the race, keep being intentional. Have you settled into, okay, I show up, we talk, I go home, or are you still getting as much out of it as you did the first week? So are you still doing the steps? Are you doing the homework? Are you keeping a journal? Are you coming ready? Are you sharing deeply? Are you going beyond? Because disciple making starts with discipling ourselves, and then it goes to discipling those around us. Yeah, we hope, we hope that you have developed intentional relationships through this as well, that you've gone deeper in friendships and that you'll share life, share your faith with those people as well. It's one of the biggest parts about home groups is uh, not just making yourself better, but helping make the people around you better. With just a few weeks left, maybe you, you feel like you haven't quite hit the mark on that yet, but you still have plenty of opportunities to do that. Yeah. and just want to encourage you that if you're in a home group, this disciple-making series is for you. Yeah. You for, for people in home groups, individuals who have committed to that, making disciples is non-optional. It's what we're called to do by Jesus. Go into all the world and make disciples. Yeah. So remember, it starts with you, then it goes to those around you in your circle, and then it goes beyond that into all the world where you need to start making disciples. So take the call seriously. Take the steps necessary. Count the cost tonight, and I think we'll have a good discussion about that. Yeah, have a great night, guys. See you next week.